Well, how's everybody doing this morning? Not good enough. How's everybody doing this morning? All right, better. Some of you look like you had a rough night last night. I'm glad you're here. Some wild living, huh? Prodigal sons. It's going to be fun. Well, uh, like Phil said, uh, my name is Anthony. I'm from Redemption City Church in Woodstock, Illinois. It took us about 50 minutes to get here this morning. Uh, we are so grateful for you guys, Embassy Church. We have spent time with your elders, and Phil has spent a lot of time with me, encouraging me. And so we know each other from Capitol Hill Baptist Church. That's our connection. He wasn't there when I was there, but we have a lot of mutual friends in common. We both went through that uh, very, very, very uh, hard internship for five months. That was crazy, uh, but it was a lot of fun. And so I'm grateful for you guys. Our church family is grateful for you guys. We have been praying for you guys on Sunday morning as well. And so I will be preaching on Luke chapter 15, primarily focusing on the story of the prodigal sons. So let me do this. Let me pray for us, and then we will dive in. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word, that it is powerful, that it transforms, that God, that we don't even know at times what you're going to say to us, and we just kind of show up because maybe somebody invited us, and then all of a sudden your Holy Spirit impacts our hearts. I'm praying for that right now in this short time that we have together, that if there is somebody sitting here who just showed up because of a girl, who just showed up because their parents brought them, who just showed up because they were lonely, that they will meet you, Jesus. Lord, I'm praying for the younger sons in this room that are in a far-off country today. Would you please bring them back home? Lord, I'm praying for the older sons that are sitting amongst our midst, that sit in the pews every Sunday, but they have not come inside the Father's house. I pray that you would show them your compassion even towards the older son. And Lord, most importantly, when we see the resurrected Jesus and his love for us in this passage and what that means for us as a local church. May it be all about you, Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, I will be speaking on the prodigal sons, and maybe you've never heard the story of the prodigal sons, or maybe you've heard it a million times. But the reason I think God put this passage on my heart is because it speaks to every single person in this room, whether you hate God or have been a Christian for years. Now, prodigal is one of those words that doesn't mean what we all think it means. It doesn't mean lost or wayward. It actually means recklessly or wastefully extravagant. For the younger son squandered his wealth in wild living. And in that regard, this story could easily be called the prodigal God. The father in the story, a picture of God, is lavish and reckless with his love for his children. This is the father that we worship. This is the one that accepts us in our filth. 
And so we want to remember that we worship a prodigal God that we think he's going to come and just put this stiff arm and instead he gives us a bear hug of his love and his compassion. And that's what we see here in this passage. So maybe you keep wondering why I keep saying the prodigal sons instead of the prodigal son as it is traditionally taught. And the reason is because both sons are lost. And on the surface, you can't really tell that the older son is lost. But as we go along, you will see it. Now Charles Dickens called this the greatest, shortest story that was ever written. There's some of you here today. You are practicing Proverbs 16.25. That there's a way that appears right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. I pray that this passage would open the eyes of your heart and you would see your sin and see that repentance and faith in Christ is the only answer. Now, what Luke does is, Luke does this a couple times throughout his gospel Something sparks a story from Jesus. And so the present setting actually helps us understand the whole chapter. And so in Luke chapter 15 verses 1 through 2, we see the context for what triggers Jesus into this story. So something is happening that provokes Jesus to tell this story. And look what it is that provokes him. Verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. That's Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners. And not just that, he eats with them. And then we read verse 3, and then Jesus responds with three parables. Now, to understand the word tax collectors, to understand why that's such a big deal back then, we kind of read over that. We don't really get the weight of that. And see, in Palestine, tax collectors were representatives of Roman governing authorities. And so their tendency was to resort to extortion, and they were despised and hated by their very own people. See, they were involved with the Romans. See, at this time, Rome controlled the area of Palestine. Rome was in charge of Israel. Israel could not do anything without Rome's permission. And how did Rome conquer the world? Rome went in, set up a statue of Caesar, and then said, everybody bow to Caesar and worship him. And if they didn't, there are literally historical accounts of 30 to 40,000 men, women, and children being crucified in their rejection against Rome. They wanted to make sure people understood, if you don't bow to Caesar, you will be destroyed. And so how did Rome fund this army. How did they do it? Through taxes, the same way we do it today. Now, how do they get the tax money? 
the tax collectors. And so these Jewish tax collectors are partnering with the very oppressors of their own nation and exhorting and taking advantage of their very own people. They didn't just reject their nation. They were rejecting their God. These are the tax collectors. I mean, these are the worst of society. Think traitors. And Jesus welcomes them and eats with them. And sinners, it doesn't mean what, what it means like for us today, like, oh, we're all sinners. No, 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 no. These are like in the first century when this was written, sinners were not everybody. They were actually a class of people. And so this is referring specifically to those people who have jobs that are questionable or immoral or they acted immoral. So for example, this is the slave traders, the brothel owners, the prostitutes, the drunkards. These are the people that this text is referring to. The tax collectors and sinners. And what does it say? They were all gathering around to hear this Jesus. But the Pharisees were also there, gathered around Jesus. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now who were the Pharisees? Who were the teachers of the law? These were the people who basically hated grace and they thought they could work their way to God. See, they wanted religion without the cross and grace of God. They wanted religion without the Father. They may have done it in the name of the Father, but they did not know the Father because Jesus said in John 8 that their very Father was the devil. And so this is the context to this story. And then Jesus tells three parables. And we read the first two. Tells the story of the parable of the man who lost a sheep. And we see the man goes out and finds this one lost sheep. And then he throws a party and they rejoice. There's a celebration. The sheep that was lost was now found. And then it also tells the story of a woman who, who loses a heirloom. So she loses a piece of jewelry that was very valuable to her. And what does she do? She seeks after it. She stops everything she's doing to pursue and find this heirloom. And this is the context to the story. So right off the bat, Jesus is wanting us to get the idea that God seeks after the lost. This is our job as the church. This is the mission to make disciples, to seek after the lost. This is what we do as a church. This, uh, this past week, I, uh, I started to go through some of the historical documents of, of our church. And so our church has actually been around since uh, uh, 1953. And so it started in a house, and then in 1960, they, they moved to one building. And then in 1974, they moved to another, our present building that we're at now. And so I w started reading through the historical archives, and I just wanted to see like the history of this church, learning about this church. And so I read about this guy who, who the, the, where the church first met. And I said, I need to go see this house where the church first started. And so I, I go and I, I drive and, and I go into the, to the town and I, and I find it. It's about a mile and a half away from the present building. And, and I walk up and, and there's a lady sitting there gardening with rocking ACDC. 
highway to hell. And so I, I, I walk up and like, hey, my, my name is Anthony, and uh, I'm a pastor, and I don't know if you know this, but this church in the 50s, uh, our church is presently at, like, it started here for seven years. And so she's renting from the landlord, and, and so she's like, oh, that's, that's amazing. And she's like, would you like to come see the house, honey? I'm like, yeah. So we walk in, and, and, and we start talking, and she's like, wow, that's so cool. And she starts to tell me about her kind of religious views. And that's the cool thing about being a pastor. People walk up, and they just start telling you their views about God. And so as she's pouring the Bud Light, and we're listening to Highway to Hell, she starts to tell me that Adam is really not the father of Cain, that it's actually Satan. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That's not in the Bible that I'm reading. And so we just kind of start to talk about it, and we start to get into the Hebrew. And she's like, I'm telling you, it's there. The word beguiled, it means something else. I'm like, no, no, it really doesn't mean what you think it means. It's not a symbol. Beguile actually means beguiled. It actually means deceived. And so we start having this conversation. And she says, okay, well, and I never said this. She's like, but she's like, well, okay, so, so do you want to start having a Bible study here? Like, on a weekly basis, I think I can do that. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even offer up this. Okay, um, I'm coming back next week with my wife, and we're going to have a Bible study. Listen, uh, uh, we seek the lost. That's what we do. When God puts these opportunities in front of us, we go, oh, this person's lost. They need Jesus. That's the mission of the church, to tell people about Jesus, to seek and save the lost. This is the context for our story. But then Jesus drives it deeper. Because it's one thing to lose a puppy. It's another thing to lose a piece of jewelry. But it's a whole other thing to lose a son. And some of you know what that's like. Some of you right now may be thinking about a child of yours that is lost. My friends, I want to encourage you this morning to have the gracious father heart that God has for his children and to pray and seek and love and reach out and don't give up and don't abandon and keep pursuing and have the heart that God has for his children that are lost. Friends, if that's you today, if your child is far in a country, a far off country, have the father heart of God and do not renounce them. Jesus continued, verse 11. There was a man, this is God the Father, right? Who had two sons. Now, right off the bat, the most important person in this story is not the younger son. And it's not the older son. The most important in this story, the most important person is God the Father. It's not the two sons. A lot of people think this is about the lost sons. But it's really about God the Father. See, the father is mentioned 12 times in these 21 verses. The whole Bible is not about us. It's about who? Jesus, right? The whole Bible is not about us. It's about God. This passage is about God. So if you're following along, first point, the rebellious son. The rebellious son. That's what we're going to first focus on here. And again, a lot of people, when they preach this, they only focus on the younger son, the rebellious son. But again, we want to focus on both sons. We're going to spend some time talking about the rebellious son. 
who's in the far country. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So the first son responds rebelliously. The first son says, I don't want to be in your house anymore. Give me my share. What the son was saying was, I wish you were dead, right? When do you get your inheritance? After your parents pass away. You don't get your inheritance before they pass away. What does this son want? He wants it now. He's saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. I mean, my wife is seven and a half months pregnant right now. And I, we have a baby boy. His name is Abishai. And I can't imagine Abishai saying to me when he's 17, I wish you were dead. I don't want you. I just want your stuff. I can't imagine that. I can't even fathom that this, this, this boy that I'm looking forward to raising and loving and spending time with and creating a home of grace and peace and joy and fellowship, saying, I want none of this. I want to go to the far country. And that's what the son does here. He says, I wish you were dead. And right there, the father could have had the son killed but he doesn't. He's so gracious. So he divided his property between him. Is that what it says? Does the text say him there? No, that's Anthony's translation. So what does the text say? Him or what? I, I can't hear you. What? Them. He divides it between them. Both sons are lost. Both sons. See, the older brother should have said, No, father, I don't want to disgrace you too. But by accepting the inheritance while the father was still alive, the older brother was saying, I wish you were dead too. But let's continue. We're going to get there. We're talking about the rebellious son right now. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. And that phrase there, got together, Scholars have said that means that he literally had to convert the land into money. And if you know anything about reading the Old Testament, you know that there were certain laws from the 12 tribes of Israel where God said, listen, do not remove boundaries. Do not sell your land. This is a gift from God. It's all the way back to when Joshua and the people of God conquered the land of Canaan and God gave them this beautiful land of Israel as a gift. And God is reminding them, listen, you, you don't just sell this. You don't just give this away. You don't move the boundary lines. This is a gift from God. And, and what does he do here? He's not just spitting on the Father. He's spitting on God. He's spitting on God's gifts. He's taking God's gifts and using it for his own purposes and disobeying God. And this is crazy because he sets off for a distant country and then squandered his wealth in wild living. And the word squandered there in the Greek, it means to scatter, 
It's like throwing one's possessions to the wind, right? And I mean, this means that he went crazy, right? He took all his money and he bought a mansion on South Beach next to LeBron and was having parties like crazy every single night. Right? And he's inviting all these people over and they're coming and they're hanging out and they're having fun and everybody wants to be his friend when he has money and he lives this wild life. And God, for a season, will allow you to live your wild life apart from him so that you can see that joy will never really be found in the wild living So God will do that. So if you're in that far country today, that's still God's grace. He's showing you that you will still be empty without Christ. You know, there's a a famous painting by by Rembrandt. It's an oil painting of the prodigal son. And and there's a famous one of the son returning. And we'll get to that later. But but there's another one that, 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 that Rembrandt made a couple years before he died. And this painting, it's called The the Prodigal Son in the Brothel. And when I was living in Washington, D.C., I had an opportunity to to go to the National Gallery of Art. And it's actually hanging there. And I remember just kind of seeing this picture and just kind of looking at it and and just seeing the, 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 the story of it. And I'm just like, wow, this is such a beautiful picture. But there was one thing I, di- I didn't know at the time. I found this out later. That, that actually in the picture, we're actually going to pull it up. And we can turn off the lights just so they can see it real quick. You just get an idea. I mean, that, so that picture right there, that's, that's the, 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 the prodigal son, the younger son who's in the tavern in his wild living. And Rembrandt painted his own face into that picture. And that's his wife at the time. And if you know anything about Rembrandt's story, he didn't live the most righteous life, right? He wasn't the best guy. When his wife was dying, he cheated on her while she was sick and dying. I mean, this is not a stand-up man. Great painter, but not the most moral man, right? You don't want him babysitting your kids, you know what I mean? So he paints his portrait into the picture, into the portrait, his face. Because Rembrandt knew that he himself was a prodigal. He knew this story well. Do you know that today? That you and I are prodigals? If you don't think you're a younger son, then you're probably an older son. Verse 14. After he had spent everything... There was a severe famine in the whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. I mean, a Jewish boy feeding pigs, living In the pig's pen. A Jewish boy. I mean, if you know anything about the scriptures, you know that that, that pigs are unclean to Jews. They don't eat bacon. Oh, gosh, that's so sad. Thank God for the new covenant in Christ. Amen? Bacon is good. 
A couple weeks ago, I hung out with Phil. He wanted some of my bacon. I gave him one piece, only one. And he still grumbled like the Pharisees. No, just kidding. But he, he's feeding pigs. And look what it says. He longed to fill his stomach. It, longed. And, and in the Greek, it's the use of the imperfect verb, which all it means is he was in a continual, a continual state of deprivation. It was continual. He just had this, this constant longing to fill his stomach with the pods. You want to see what pods look like? I mean, this is what he was longing for. Pods, that's nasty. That's, that, for him, he was longing for that. If you're in the far country, that's what you're really eating. The father offers a feast. But so often we go for the pods that the pigs were eating. And so he's in this pig's pen. And, and he thinks he will be satisfied with this life of sin, but it, but it just never does. I mean, if that, that's where you're at right now, let me l- let you know, it deceives you. When you chase after something with hopes of it satisfying, those deep longings and cravings of joy in your soul that you have, that you were made for, and you finally attain it, you eventually realize it isn't enough. When you see how empty it has left you, then that's when disillusionment and despair set in. Soren Kierkegaard, the the great Danish philosopher, when he was young in his mid-twenties and still trying to find himself, he wrote this in his journal. Last night, I went to a party. Everybody admired my wit and sophistication. All agreed that I was the most entertaining. And I returned to my apartment, closed the door, held a gun in my hands, and thought about blowing out my brains. You party with the world in the end, it will leave you empty. It will leave you empty. But no one gave him anything. No one. And listen, no one can satisfy those longings in your soul other than God. Nobody. I've tried it. Others have tried it. Just all throughout church history, we see story after story and story of prodigals realizing that the pleasures of this world were not satisfied. Whenever they become God in our eyes, they become an idol. And they will deceive us, and they will enslave us, and then they will ruin us, and they will eventually destroy us. Christ is your only answer. Verse 17, there's hope. My friend, if you're in the far country, there's hope. When he came to his senses, (laughs) some translations say when he came to himself. When he came to his senses, he said, (laughs) 
How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. That, that's coming to your senses. The, the son is having a conversion here. He's realizing that the father is actually good. See, sometimes you have to go to the world to realize that the father is actually good. And so he goes to the far country and he realizes this after this long journey away from home, after squandering everything in wild living, having everything he could possibly imagine, not denying his eyes any pleasure, like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. And he realized how empty he was. And he says he came to his senses. And I, I just, I, I love this because we, we sung, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. I will arise and go to Jesus. He realizes this. I will arise and go to the Father. He comes to his senses. He realizes his, the goodness of his Father. I will set out and go back to my Father and say to him. Now, he, this is his plan, right? Like, don't we all do that? Don't we rehearse speeches? Like when we have an important conversation, when we've hurt somebody, some of us even type it up. Say, let me, let me read it to you because I want to make sure I get everything right here. When you've wronged somebody, you know what I'm talking about? He, he has his plan. Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the third part of his plan, make me like one of your hired men. He just remembers the goodness of God. That God is good. And so... This is his plan. And he realizes, and this is so interesting, he, he, he says hired men. He realizes that he's not even worthy to even be a slave. See, slaves lived with their masters. He just wanted to work for his father. He definitely isn't expecting to live in the house or to even have the privilege of being a slave. He just wants to be a hired man and this verse in Deuteronomy which I know he knows because he's a good Jewish boy so 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 he was trained in this and and so he he knows that he escaped with his life because look what Deuteronomy 21 says so going back going back is is a risk look, look what Deuteronomy 21 18 21 says if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him? His father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all of the men of his town shall stone him to death. So this son knows that this is a real possibility. And I mean, the Pharisees, as they're listening to the story, they're thinking, 
Yeah. Yeah, he escaped once, but he's not going to escape again. The teachers of the law knew this, memorized it. This is what they're thinking is going to happen. 1520. So he got up and went to his father. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine that walk. Imagine the shame. Imagine the head down. Imagine what he's thinking. I mean, just imagine that walk back home. What that was like. I mean, he's destitute. He's starving. I mean, he smells like pigs. It's, 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 it, we, we can't even really grasp it. I mean, we kind of can, but, and he's just wondering, what, what's his father going to do? Is his father going to just give him mercy to at least let him be a hired man? And so he got up and went to his father. You know, David McCullough, the two-time winner of the Pulitzer Prize, he wrote kind of like the definitive biography on the second president of the United States, John Adams. And so HBO actually made a little miniseries based off of McCullough's biography. And one of the narratives that the show follows is John Adams' relationship with his youngest son, Charles. And at age 15, Charles entered Harvard and had a promising life ahead of him. And after Charles graduated, he started his own law firm. He married the love of his life, Sally, and they had two beautiful little girls together. But eventually, Charles had a downward spiral. His brother, future president, John Quincy Adams had left his savings of $2,000 in the trust of his brother Charles. Now, that's about, today, about $100,000. Okay, we're talking about a lot of money here. And in the time since, however, Charles had managed to lose nearly all of it and kept silent about what had happened until eventually it came out. After that, Charles disappeared and abandoned his family. He bankrupted his family, wasted it on other women, and was a known alcoholic. He had disgraced his family, and he had disgraced his father. After that moment, the family would not even refer to him by name anymore. He died of liver disease at the early age of 30. The HBO miniseries had a scene where John Adams finds his son in a brothel-like place. And after walking through a back alley, John enters the place where his youngest son was living, and it was an absolute mess. There were beer bottles everywhere, and there was vomit on the floor. Charles was knocked out, and his father, in anger, takes his cane and starts to break some bottles which startles Charles out of this drunken stupor. And as Charles starts to wake up and he wipes his eyes and he stands up, John says, Absalom, O King David's son, at least showed some enterprise. He had the dignity to die in battle. But my son, 
My son is a mere rack, a buck, blood, and beast. Your mother is beside herself with grief to see all of her finest aspirations squandered on a miserable drunkard. And worse, a cheat than John's last words to his son before he died. And Charles says, that's it, Father. Curse me. But tears in his eyes. And John says, I renounce you. And Charles falls at his feet with tears in his eyes. He says, Father, have mercy. And John just throws him to the side and walks out. And that's what the Pharisees want when the son comes home. And that's when you're reading the story, that's what you can kind of understand a little bit. You say, okay, I get it. But that's not what the father does. It says, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And, and compassion there, it's, the, the Greek literally means it's the intestines, the, the bowels, the, the abdomen. He felt this sick feeling when he saw his son, his boy, his, his youngest child was headed. And, 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 and he feels this compassion. And it says that he ran to his son. And instead of, instead of throwing his son away, it says he threw his arms around him and he kissed his son. It says that he kissed him in the Greek. It means repeatedly. It, he, he kissed him. And, it, and you just, do you understand why the father ran? He ran because he knew that, that, that the village was going to get him before he got to his father's house. He knew. And so the father is covering the son's shame. The father is running to cover the shame of the son because he knows what the son is going to experience. He knows that people are going to come up and say, no, you can't go see your father. And they're going to spit on him and they're going to mock him. And they might even try to stone him. But the father runs to the son and says, I will take your shame. I will take your guilt. I will take your sin. And I will take it upon myself. And not only that, I will kiss you. And love you. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century British pastor of the famous Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He wrote this on, this on this scene. This poor young man in his hungry, faint, and wretched state, having come a very long way, had not much heart in him. His hunger had taken all energy out of him. And he was so conscious of his guilt that he had hardly the courage to face his father. So his father gives him a kiss, as much as to say, Come, boy, do not be cast down. I love you. Oh, the past, the past, my father, he might moan, as he thought of his wasted years. But he had no sooner said that than he received another kiss, as if his father said, Never mind the past. I have forgotten all about that. This is the Lord's way with his saved ones. Their past lies hidden under the blood of atonement. 
The Lord says by his servant Jeremiah, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none, and the sins of Judah, and they shall not be found, for I have pardoned them whom I reserve. But then, perhaps, the young man looked down at his foul garments and said, but the present, my father, the present, what a dreadful state I am in, and with content to have thee as thou art. Never mind the present, boy. I love thee. This, too, is God's word for those who are accepted in the beloved. In spite of all their vileness, in spite of all their sin, they are pure and spotless in Christ. And God says of each one of them, Since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore, though in thyself thou art unworthy, through my dear son thou art welcome to my home. Oh, but, the boy have said, the future, my father, what about the future? What should you think if I should ever go astray again? Then would come another holy kiss, and his father would say, I will see to the future, my boy. I will make home so bright for you that you will never want to go away again. But God does more than that for us when we return to him. He not only surrounds us with tokens of his love, but he says concerning us, they shall be my people, and I will be their God. The Father is doing exactly what Jesus did. He came down into our village to run the gauntlet and bear the shame and the, and the slander and the mockery and to throw his arms around us and kiss us and reconcile with us. This is the love of Jesus. He doesn't just throw his arms around us. He extends his hands to the cross to show his love for us. This is the gospel. This is the good news. If you are in the far country, this is what your soul needs. And God calls you to repent and believe in this gospel. And here is what I love. The rebellious son doesn't get it. See, he still struggles to believe that his father actually forgave him. Have you ever been there? Have you ever struggled to believe that God could actually forgive you? He's struggling. Look, this, it's like the son doesn't get it. The son starts to rehearse his speech. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Point one, remember? Plan two, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can even get to his plan, and I love this because this is what the son was banking on, right? The, the son is, is banking on the fact that he can come on his terms and earn the father's love. But the father says, no, you're going to come on my terms, and it's going to be grace. See, God doesn't want dutiful slaves, but affectionate sons. He doesn't want dutiful slaves. He wants affectionate sons. This is going to be grace. You're not going to earn my love. And if you try to earn my love, you're actually going to be offending me. It's grace. That's what we believe in, brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace. It's all about God's love on sinners. And then the father interrupts him. He doesn't even get to finish his sentence. It's like he's not getting it. It's like, wake up. Your father loves you. 
But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe. And, and, and again, the robe, who did the robe, who did, who did it belong to? The father. He's, he's putting the robe on the son. He's saying, you are my son. You've now been accepted. You always pulled out the best robe for the, for the guest of honor. He's putting it on the son. He's saying, listen, you're a guest. You're the guest of honor in my house. And put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Again, the, the signet ring. It signified the granting or transferring of authority. By calling for a ring to be placed on his finger, he is restoring to him the authority of sonship. It's symbolic. He's putting the ring. I mean, can you imagine? They're putting the ring on his finger and he's crying. He's saying, you accept me again? And then number three, it says, put on the ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. See, shoes and sandals were a luxury they were worn by free men, never worn by slaves. What he is reminding the son is you are free. You're free. And when Christ died for us, he sets us what? Free. He who is in the son is free indeed. There's freedom in Christ. And he's telling him, you're not a slave. You're not a hired servant. You're a son. See, this story is not about you. It's not about me. The story is about the love, mercy, and grace of God. This is not so much about the celebration of the Son. This is a celebration of the Father. This is about the celebration of the Father. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. I mean, he's, let's have a feast. Bring out the DJ. Bring out the DJ. Let's party it up here. They're celebrating. There's dancing. Bring out the best prime rib you can find. And make sure it's medium, because I really like medium. And the bacon for Phil. And bring out the best wine you can find, because my son who was dead is now alive. There's a party here. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate the feast honors the father it honors the father for what he's done this is beautiful listen and by the way this shows us that if you're in the midst of a famine right now you can still have a feast with the father you can still have a feast with the father story ends right we close the book we go home like Anthony, it's a long sermon not done yet right a quentin tarantino movie this is like act two we're jumping in. We don't close the book because he's not finished yet. Remember the context, Luke 15, 1 through 2. So that's for the younger son, the tax collectors and sinners. But then the Pharisees and the teachers of the law grumbled. Now he's going to go there. He's bringing the passage full circle. Now look what happens. So we talked about the rebellious son. Now we're talking about the religious son, point two. The religious son. As they are celebrating the return of the son, we are then introduced to the religious son. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music 
and dancing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> imagine you're the older son, right? You're not, even, <laughs> you're not even invited to the party. Nobody's even telling you about the party right now. The party's going on. You're not there. You walk in, probably to get a little sandwich or something, a ham sandwich, and you're seeing what, what, what's going on. Like, wait, like, why, why are they playing Justin Timberlake right now? Why is there a party? What, what, what happened? Somebody forgot to tell me. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed. Your brother? No. Is that what he was hoping for? Probably. Probably. How do we know that? Because he's speaking to the Pharisees. Are the Pharisees going to end up killing somebody because he accepted the outsiders? Yeah. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Literally means shalom. There's peace in the house of the father. The older brother became angry. And the word used here, it's for heat coming on a log with sap rising and beginning to swell and ready to burst. So he's feeling this anger. I mean, and so often in the Gospels, you read about the Pharisees being angry with Jesus. The older brother is angry at the grace of the father. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. I mean, to refuse to join a banquet given by his father, would be viewed as a great public insult. He dishonored his father by arguing while the guests are present. So what we see here is the father is going and now going to pursue and entreat the older son. See, the younger son breaks rules in the far country. And the older son keeps rules but stays on the porch. Both need to come into the house of the father. There is no real difference between the far country and the front porch. Do you get that? Okay, if you've never gone to the far country, but you stay on the front porch, and your life isn't marked by joy, but by anger and bitterness and begrudging and God owes me, then you may be an older son. That's what this text is saying. You need to come into the house. Remember we talked about Rembrandt, and we talked about that painting, and then the famous one is the return of the prodigal son. But, but notice what happens here, and I want us to see it again. The, the other picture. We can shut off the lights real quick, thank you. You see, obviously, the father just kind of welcoming the son. Well, you can't see it because it cut off, but you can kind of get the idea. But that... Over there on the far right is the older son looking down, despising that picture. Rembrandt wanted to point out that he wasn't just the older, the younger son, he was also the older son. 
Augustine, the 4th century theologian of church history, he wrote this. Because maybe this will help you because what happens is if, if, you're, the, if you're the older brother, if you're the, if you're the religious son or daughter, what happens is you, you, you can sit in the pew your whole life and never come inside the party. And so I want to help you see it a little bit more. Augustine said this, For it is not by our feet, nor by change of place, that we either turn from thee or to thee. So it's not by our feet, nor change of place, right? It's not just going to Las Vegas and parting it up. You can still be here. You can come here every single Sunday and still be far from the Father. Not know the Father. In darkened affections lies the distance from thy face. I'll say that again. That's very profound what Augustine is saying. In darkened affections lies the distance from the Father's face. In other words, when you don't love God, you can be on the farm or you could be a universe away from God. The younger son was far from God because of sins of passion. But the older son was far from God because of sins of lack of affection. God cares about our affections, brothers and sisters. He desires our hearts. And this man's affections was not for the father. It was for the stuff of the father. And it was for his own friends. Look what it says. But he answered his father. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I mean, think about it. He's, he's been slaving, right? I mean, even as the party's going on, he's out in the field. And he's like, I can't believe you did this, Papa. You gave my younger brother the fatted calf. Guess how that calf got fat? I took care of that fat. That, I took care of that calf. That's how that calf got fat. I was the one who fed it. It was me, not this son of yours. And look what he says. You never even gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. You see what's, you see what's in his heart? He doesn't really want the father or the brother to be there at the feast. He just wants a feast for him and his friends. And what Jesus is doing, he's pointing to the Pharisees how they, how they never welcomed sinners. And so he says this. This is, this is wow. And, and so, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And, and so the older brother refuses to even acknowledge the prodigal as his brother. Listen, as, as a church, we want to have a culture of grace. We want to have a culture of, of welcoming all and responding to all with love and compassion. And we don't want the, the, the older son's spirit in our churches. Do you know how much damage that has caused? Have you ever been in an older brother type church? You're like, yeah, Anthony, that's why I'm here right now. I get it. So th this, uh, this past week, I found the, the, old, 
visitor cards from our church and like 50 cards, 10 years of worth of people just visiting. And, and so one of the things that I remember in the internship at Capitol Hill Baptist Church was when Mark Dever got to Capitol Hill, the first thing he started doing was just following up on people who hadn't been there in years. And so I was like, well, that's a good model. I need to do that. So the first person I call, his name's Craig. And it's Craig and Tammy, and he has one kid here named Chad. And so I call him, and I say, hey, Craig, my name's Anthony. I, I just became the new pastor at this church that you visited about three, four years ago. How can I pray for you? I mean, what would you do if you got that call? Like, whoa, this guy's a stalker. This is weird. Right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm stalking for Jesus, baby. Okay, don't tweet that. That sounds really weird. But you know what I mean. And so I tell Craig, how can I pray for you? And Craig just starts to open up. And he starts to tell me that he struggles with depression and anxiety. And that he came to the church and... And he liked it, and he came a few times, but because he really struggled with depression and anxiety, and he, and he starts to tell me, like, he has to defend this to me, like, like, you know Charles Spurgeon struggled with depression. I'm like, yeah, brother, I get it. You, you're, you're not in sin for struggling with depression. Many people, many Christians have struggled with depression throughout church history. And, and so he's like, well, the thing is, I was coming, and, and and, and I guess there was somebody there that, that's not there anymore that, that I missed a Sunday. And he just came up to me and he said, he said, where were you last Sunday? And I told him that I, that I had depression. And he, and he just kind of made me feel not welcomed. And that was the last time I ever came back. And that was the last time I ever heard from your church again. And then he starts to tell me that Chad here, Chad... Chad lost his life. Chad's not alive anymore. And that his father committed suicide. And so I start to weep and I tell him, listen, brother, I'm sorry. We have failed you as a church. Will you forgive us? We've sinned against you. I'm getting coffee with Chad. We're getting coffee. We want to have a spirit of the Father's heart in our churches. We want to have a culture of grace. We want to judge sin when it's unrepentant and it's public and it's habitual. But when there's repentance, we forgive. Open arms, come back. We love you. Amen? Amen. If you are a parent here, you need to remember that it is about the heart. If your child keeps the rules, but you never teach them to examine the heart, you will end up creating little Pharisees right underneath your noses. And as they get older, they will despise grace because you have trained them to think that it's all about appearances and that God owes them something. It's about the affections. Verse 31, we're almost done. My son, the father said, it literally, my child, that's what it means, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
He's, he's now, I mean, he's now speaking directly to the Pharisees. And I, I just love this. I mean, and, and, and you know this, last weekend, right, Phil talked about this in Galatians chapter 1. Who was a Pharisee? The Apostle Paul. He murdered Christians. And, and so wait, so, so I get the, the, the repentance from the son and, and, and the, heart, the father heart of the father because he loves the son because the son repented. But, but wait, he's, he's, he's entreating the, 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 the older brother, the, the Pharisees, the, the very ones that are going to crucify him, he still loves. Yes, it's grace. See, the older brother even sees the grace from the father. God is gracious even still to the older brother. This is so beautiful. But guess what happens here? The story just ends. It, it just, it's like a cliffhanger. They're like, okay, wait, like, you go to Luke 16, it's like, wait, what, what happened? Did, the, did, did he come in or did he not come in? And so it's like the ultimate cliffhanger, right? Like, like, like I remember watching Inception for the first time, and I'm there at the end, and the totem is spinning, and it's wobbling, and, it, and then all of a sudden, Christopher Nolan, it goes black, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what happens? I think mean, you imagine later that night, Jesus is hanging out with the sinners, sipping the wine. Come on, Jesus, tell us what happened. Jesus probably said, wait a few days. Because you know what happened a few days later? The son was crucified by the older brother. See, the rebellious son knows he broke all the rules. And the religious son thinks he kept all the rules. I mean, he's like Bruce Willis in The Sixth Sense. He doesn't even know he's dead. He doesn't even get it. And so there are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. One is by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course. And one is by keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good. They both will lead you straight to hell. Do, do we close the book? Almost, two minutes. We don't close the book. We keep reading. We read the Bible in its whole meta narrative, in the whole context. There's a third son. So you have the rebellious son. You have the religious son. And then you have the righteous son. And his name is Jesus. And he's the one who's actually telling the story here. See, there's a third son in the story. And it's the son who's telling the story, and he's the key to the whole story because he's not the rebellious son because he never sinned. And he's not the religious son because he's the son of God, and his name is Jesus. And he's the righteous son who a few days later, after telling this story, will die for what we did. It's about Jesus. If you're the rebellious son or daughter, or you're the religious son of daughter, you need the grace of God in your life. Will you pray with me? Father, pray right now for the younger sons in this room, the ones that are off in the far country. Would you bring them to yourself? Would they come to their senses? Would they see their sin? 
and their rejection of your goodness in their life. And they would they respond in repentance and faith and trust in you. Lord, I pray for the religious sons or daughters in this room. Maybe even sitting in this pew. Maybe not even understanding grace in their life. I pray, Lord, that they would turn to your grace and not get angry at it, but find it sweet to the soul. Lord, would we stop living our lives as if we can earn your love. Lord, you love us because of what Jesus Christ did. And I pray for our churches to have the Father's heart and spirit in our places. So when the rebellious or the religious show up, we have a culture of grace that values the affections and values your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.